0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Gregory Doolin to the show. Greg is the owner of Doolin's Soul Food Restaurants on Crenshaw, Manchester, and Century Boulevards in South Los Angeles. And Doolin's is one of the largest black owned catering companies in the city. They are a Los Angeles cultural institution. And he is also co owner of Hotville Chicken, which serves Nashville hot fried chicken in South LA and was rated one of the best restaurants of 2020 by Los Angeles Magazine. Greg has a degree from Howard University and studied at UCLA and is a beloved community member and leader. I am thrilled to have him here and I can't wait to hear his story. Welcome to the show, Greg.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Hey, it's great to have you here, man. And I should mention that my wife, Andrea Diagusto, is a very, very talented food photographer. And she took photos of Doolin's and Hotville and you and Kim, who is your co-owner at at Hotville Chicken. And uh, she obviously put us in touch and She just spoke so highly of you and Kim and that experience. And I've seen the photos and tried the food and it was, it's amazing. And I really appreciate you being here.
1: Well, we uh, appreciate her and she is an amazing food photographer. I mean, she made our food look uh, better than anyone else has. And we really, really appreciate her talent and her, you know, just taking an interest in our business.
0: No, it was, it was a big love fest. It was a big love fest. Before we dive into your story, I wanted to mention how fascinating it is to see you in pictures with some of the most influential politicians out there. People like our current mayor, Eric Garcetti, has held community organizing events at your restaurants. Now our current president-elect, Joe Biden, made a stop there early in his campaign in 2019. And I just, I have to know what it's like for you to be so recognized as a touchstone in the community of South LA that someone like the president swings by and takes pictures with you.
1: Well, it it's quite an honor. It's an honor for me, uh, but it's an honor for the community as well uh, because that lets us know that these people of uh, power and who run our country and run our state and our city uh, recognize our community and that we are important and important enough for them to, to take time to come and visit. So we really appreciate that.
0: Have you always enjoyed it? Is it sometimes... Is it sometimes like more attention than you want? Are you just happy to always be recognized as a place that's the center of the community and you just celebrate that?
1: Well, I've kind of gotten used to it. <laughs> uh, and it started day one that I that I opened a restaurant over 30 years ago. The uh, Rodney King riots wow, right. had uh, occurred uh, while I was in the middle of opening the, the restaurant we were going through. The renovation process, and I didn't have a lot of money back then, so we were really, it was taking longer than normal to get the restaurant ready to go. Before we could open, about a week before we could open, the Rodney King riots started. Mm-hmm. And uh, we put the signs out in front of the restaurant, you know, uh, Black-owned business and please don't burn us down. I can remember seeing the Firestone tire dealership directly across the street from me burned down, and I was wow. fearful that my new restaurant was going to burn down, and I was witnessing all the chaos and everything like that. And so when the riots finally stopped, we opened the restaurant, and within a day, I was just deluged, just the media was, was everywhere. They were looking for stories, and here I was, this brand new restaurant that opened up right after the riots, wow. and I never will forget it. We had uh, Channel 7 or Channel 4 news. I can't remember which one. Uh, they came to the restaurant. And, and mind you, I, I, I'd only been open a, a week or two. And the reporter was standing out front. And they, the storyline was, we were standing in front of Doolin's Soul Food Restaurant, the first restaurant to open after the Rodney King riots. Wow. And all of a sudden, people started coming from everywhere. And the, the restaurant was swamped. And then we started getting news uh, outlets from all over the world coming to Dublin to do stories. And then we started getting the politicians to come. And so whenever the political season comes around, I just I expect it. We've had Senator Arlen Specter, Arnold wow. Schwarzenegger, Joe Kennedy, Mayor Reardon. Of course, Maxine comes from time to time. And then Joe Biden. We just have that, you know, we just have that position in in the community, I guess, where folks uh, see it as an advantage, you know, to stop by Doolin's for a meal or to serve a meal. Antonio Villagosa has been a couple of times. Sure. And a lot of these politicians come and they put on aprons and they get behind the serving line and they serve and get the photo ops. And so, yeah, we've seen that a lot over the years.
0: Okay, I have to ask. You don't have to name a specific name. But how often do you just roll your eyes? How often are you going, this guy is totally full of crap, or this woman is full of crap, or this person is awesome? Does it provide you with an insight, a specific and special, unique insight into a politician because you have seen so many of them come through and you can tell when one is more genuine than another?
1: Well, you have to understand that the person you meet, the person whose hand you shake, the person who is reading the public at your establishment is probably not being the, their true selves. You know, you know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're putting on their best face because they're dealing with the public. Probably everybody does that to some degree. But I can tell you that um, some of the politicians, you say, eh, I don't know. And others you you say, you know, this is a real good guy or a really good person or good lady. You know, that's certainly how I felt about Joe Biden when he came. Um, he's just a good man, just a good, he's just a good man.
0: That's sweet.
1: And you feel it and, and you can see it, you know, and it's genuine. He's genuine. You know, I, I don't claim to have any special insight on you know, the, the psyches of, of politicians and, and their motivations, but, uh, you know, you can tell when somebody's really sincere
0: or not. Greg, it's lovely to hear this. And I've, I've been very excited to talk to you and I'm excited to get into the show. I told you I have a softball question that I ask everyone. The softball question is what did you have for breakfast this morning? I didn't. You don't eat breakfast.
1: I do eat breakfast. But this morning we had to get going and I I, I had to rush out to meet the uh, meat man at uh, Hotville uh, Chicken and open open up Hotville. And then I had to to rush over to Doolin's because I had to go deliver 300 senior citizen meals for uh, current price uh, at two different senior homes in South Los Angeles. And so I was running late. And so I didn't actually eat my first meal until about two o'clock this afternoon. How often do you
0: eat at your own restaurant? When I grew up working at Arby's, my dad owns Arby's, my family owns Arby's and I, in Omaha, and I, you know, you work there, you eat there all the time. I mean, do you eat Doolin's or Hotville five times a week? Yes. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me,
1: but I was just like, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's home cooking. Yeah. Uh, I don't eat eat Hotville that much.
0: Well, we were talking about this beforehand. Hotville is insanely hot.
1: Yes, it's hot. But you can get the chicken plain now.
0: Well, I don't want to be disincentivizing for the listener either. It's amazing to try. Yeah. And I should be clear, I didn't tell you this, but I'm primarily, I don't eat much meat anymore. But I love fried chicken. I grew up loving fried chicken. Of course, I ate the food that you gave us. But I tried that Hotville and I ate about three bites and you have to be someone that knows this flavor and loves heat. If you are one of those people, you have to go to Hotville because that is a special flavor and it's a special kind of heat. And boy, it, it was a, it's a test.
1: It's too much for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you can get it plain and whatever. There's always a bunch of doulins you can go to.
1: Yeah. I eat it mild. I eat it at the mild level. That's just a little bit of heat. I'll do that next time.
0: Okay, Greg. Well, let's get into the meat of the show. That wasn't meant to be a pun, but I do that often. So anyway, how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life?
1: Probably my mother taking us to church when we were uh, young boys. Uh, my grandfather was a was a preacher, a, a Baptist preacher. Oh, wow. And so my mother and her, her sister grew up in the church. And so that tradition was passed along to my brothers and I. How many brothers do you have? Two brothers and two sisters.
0: All right. And where do you fall in the...
1: I'm the oldest.
0: I also have two brothers and two sisters. I'm in the middle, though. Did anyone in your family following your grandfather's footsteps to be a preacher or a higher level position in their religious community
1: no no we we didn't we weren't called as they say so we went in a different direction
0: do you still practice as a baptist
1: not like i did i'm not a church gore now like i was when i was younger yeah but uh you know when i do go to church uh it's typically a baptist church that's where all the spirit is that's where you know that's where all the all the good music and and the, and the and the food after the food after the service yeah that's uh that's something to talk about that's something to write about i mean it's, it's uh, the the after service sunday dinner is a tradition in the african american community which is why soul food restaurants are so busy on sundays yeah and that's why i can't go to church because i'm I'm here cooking for, for all the uh, the hungry uh, parishioners.
0: How many members of your family uh, cooked or became chefs?
1: Well, the youngest in the family, uh, Tiffany, my sister, actually went to culinary school to become a chef. I learned in the kitchen just over the years. And then my other siblings, well, my brother helps run the, the restaurants, but he has no interest in working in the kitchen at all. So... Uh, it's just myself uh, and then my youngest sister, Tiffany, who used to work in the family businesses, but she no longer does.
0: And your father started his own restaurants, right? He was a chef.
1: Well, no. My father, uh, to give you the Adolph Doolin story, uh, worked for Los Angeles County as a social worker. Hmm. He always wanted to own his own business. Uh, he did not want to spend his life working on a job that didn't allow much advancement. And he was very ambitious. And so he wanted to own his own business. And he selected the food business, actually started off in the hamburger business. Hmm. We were in the hamburger business for quite some years. And as we came of age, uh, one by one, we were required to work in the business. And so I started off at as a very young person working in the hamburger stand, uh, my job was to roll the hamburger patties because we rolled the hamburger patties by hand. And oddly enough, I also had to chop onions, which I, I hated. Oh, man. And uh,
0: so you're just, you're just crying all day long.
1: Yeah. And so he, uh, my dad actually started the business nearly 50 years ago. And we are now running the, the business that he started. Uh, my dad, uh, Adolf Doolin, known as the King of Soul Food in Los Angeles, passed away in 2018.
0: If you don't mind, I want to hear more about that story when it's kind of time to, to get there. I want to circle back to that. Did your father start Doolin's? You started Doolin's.
1: So my father started Hamburger City in 1975. And he grew the business to four locations. And he did all of this without bank loans or anything like that. And uh, at the time, he he had five children, and uh, it was difficult to impossible for African-Americans to get loans, business loans. Banks did not lend in our communities at that time, and so he ended up having to use his pension. Wow. And he drew down on his pension, and he opened these hamburger stands, and one of the hamburger stands was located in Marina del Rey, uh, Hamburger City. Now, you have to understand that for an African-American to open a business in Marina del Rey at that time was just totally unheard of, but he did. And for a time, the businesses flourished, but they hit hard times and the businesses started to fail. And so one by one, he started to close the four hamburger stands until he had the last remaining hamburger stand in Marina Del Rey called Hamburger City, operating. The landlord at that time did not want the hamburger stand there and proceeded to evict us. And my father did two things. He fought the eviction, and then he made a big pivot. And in one day, he stopped selling hamburgers and started selling soul food, fried chicken, collard greens, black-eyed peas, cornbread, sweet potato pie. And he changed the name from Hamburger City to Aunt Kizzy's Back Porch. And the restaurant caught on. Uh, Aunt Kizzy's was the first soul food restaurant on the west side of Los Angeles. The community loved it. And what he discovered was that all facets of Los Angeles, all ethnic groups, all types of people flocked to the restaurant. And so because of that, the restaurant, unlike the typical soul food restaurant at that time, and even currently today, that doesn't get a lot of media attention, Aunt Kizzy's got a tremendous amount of media attention because of who was going there to eat. And those people that were going there to eat were going there, strictly because of where it was located. It was not located in South Los Angeles, where a lot of people were scared to go. It was actually located in Marina Del Rey, where people felt comfortable going. And as a result, the uh, restaurant was was well-recognized, and it was highly successful. And that's how the business got started. I I didn't start the business. uh, Adolf Doolin started the business.
0: When did you move out of the Marina Del Rey location and start opening it up under a different name?
1: So Aunt Kizzy's closed in Marina Del Rey, believe it or not, in 2016. Oh, wow. We operated in Marina Del Rey for 37 years in the Villa Marina Shopping Center. And my mother just decided she wanted to retire, and that's why she closed the business. I started Doolin's Soul Food restaurant on Crenshaw, patterned after on Kizzy's Back Porch in Marina Del Rey. I elected to use our family name to open the restaurant.
0: Greg, I can't wait to hear the rest of this story, and we're gonna get back to more of it right after the break. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Greg. Greg, I I wanted to know what it was like growing up as a kid watching your grandfather preach. Was your family somewhat renowned in the community even from when you were young because of that? I guess you must have been.
1: Well, my grandfather lived in Northern California and we lived in Los Angeles. Oh, And so certainly uh, when we would go to visit him in Richmond, California, he was revered. I mean, everybody knew uh, Reverend McCowan and everywhere he went, people greeted him. They knew him by name and it was just very impressive. On occasion, he would come to Los Angeles and preach at, you know, one of the local churches, and we would get a chance to to hear him preach. And it was, uh, Nick, do you know what hooping is? No, no, tell me. Hooping is a a term that is used in relation to Baptist ministers, and it is a technique in how they preach or how they give or, or speak the word. Now, I'm I'm not going to tell you what it is. Your homework is to, at the conclusion of this interview, to Google Baptist preachers hooping or or hooper, Uh W-H-O-O-P.
0: And you'll have
1: to Google it and then watch the videos. And that is how a lot of us grew up hearing our ministers uh, share the word of God through that technique and that style. It's very common to us but it might not be common to to others.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's not common to me, but what I will say is you have my word. I will not only watch videos on this, but I will attach some links to your episode so that other people, when they're hearing this, can immediately find a link and go to an awesome video of someone preaching.
1: So my grandfather was a master at giving a sermon using the hooping technique, if you will. You know, it was just amazing watching him. And he was such a disciplined person, but he was very stern, very stern and very strict. That's the one thing we didn't like about him because he was so strict. But he, he loved us and he was a great preacher. He had a big impact on, on our lives.
0: And that was your mother's father?
1: Yes, that was my mother's father. So my mother and her sister... Grew up in a Baptist minister's home, and to hear my mother describe it, it wasn't it wasn't all that fun all the time. That
0: is the experience I that I have had as I have talked to certain people that were preachers' kids. There's a, a level of strictness, like you said, sometimes, or there are there are you just see the other side of that preacher uh, in the house. So I imagine it would be rough at times.
1: Often, uh, those children can't wait to move away from home. Yeah. I'll just put it like that.
0: <laughs> but and, she still took you to the Baptist church. She still raised you in the church.
1: Yes, we were raised in the church because that's what she knew. Yeah. And, uh, and she wanted us to be saved. And so she wanted to make sure that we were uh, raised in the church. And those are in my formative years. As we got older, she switched and we moved to to a new neighborhood. And we, we we started going to a Presbyterian church, which was a totally different experience, totally different style, totally different environment. Much
0: more subdued, right? I mean intensely more Much subdued. Much more
1: subdued. Coming from a Baptist church and going to a Presbyterian church, it was almost like being it was it was almost like being bored every Sunday right. because the the music and the musical selections were weren't what you used to. You know, you weren't tapping your foot and clapping your hands like you were used to. And even the message delivered by the preacher was more subdued. It wasn't fiery. And, and, and there was absolutely no hooping going on at all, at all. So it was a total change of environment, totally different situation. And she decided to make that change in our lives. And so, you know, we went along with it. So, it,
0: yes, boring. But did you get anything out of that, even just in a cultural sense?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, you learn, at least in my case, I learned no matter what environment I'm in. And, uh, you know, I adapted and uh, I I saw a new way of serving and and worshiping the Lord, a different tone, a different speed. I'll use it. I'll use that a different speed, if you will. I think that makes
0: sense because I imagine, you know, in the the very little experience I have uh, either seeing a video or being in an experience around people that are. Exhibiting that Baptist energy, I mean, it is. It's fast. It's fiery. It's loud. It's hugely celebratory.
1: It's very spiritual.
0: I mean, to the point where people are getting the spirit, right? I mean, like they're feeling the spirit, and people are dancing, right? Is that all a part of that?
1: Uh, to some degree, yes. Uh, it all depends on the church. Every church has its own personality or its own speed, if you will. Yeah. But certainly, that's part that that can be a part of it. Yes.
0: And the Presbyterian speed was much more.
1: Much more to do, much more laid back.
0: Meditative in a way?
1: Much quieter, much quieter. Yeah. You know, very quiet, you know, just different, but enjoyable and um, educational and very, very spiritual. And so uh, I appreciated my years at Angel's Mesa Presbyterian Church.
0: So Greg, very early, you're working with your dad in the restaurants. Do you know as a young man maybe a teenager, but somewhere in your twenties. I mean, I know you went to college, but when did you kind of know you wanted to get into the food business in that way?
1: So my father always, always talked to us and me in particular, because I was the oldest about the merits of owning your own business. You know, son, you know, the only way you're going to get ahead in America is to own your own business. And uh, the only way you got to get rich in America is to own your own business. And then he often cited the example of the Jews, and he admired their business abilities and their uh, willingness to work together to support one another. And we would often talk about things like that. And not only did he talk to me about owning a business, but he actually immersed me in the businesses. He was in the food business. Uh, He was in the packing and manufacturing business. Uh, He was in the nursery school business. He had an insurance business. I mean, he was a serial businessman. Mm. And I got exposure to all those different things. And so by the time it came around for me to go to college, I knew that I wanted to go to, to Howard University, major in business administration, and then come back and work in the family business. So his... His strategy worked with me as far as I'm concerned because I got the bug very early.
0: Did your father get an education as well, a higher education?
1: Absolutely. He uh, went to Langston University in Oklahoma and got a degree in English. And then after that, he spent a couple of years in in the U.S. military.
0: Oh, wow. Was he ever stationed anywhere?
1: No, he stayed uh, stateside. Yeah, he was in the military right after the Korean War.
0: Yeah, good.
1: Good. And right good for him. right before the the Vietnam War. So he was he was in between.
0: Well, I'm glad for him. Do you think your dad was extraordinary from a a businessman's sense, a professional sense in in your South LA community? Was his drive and proactivity to I mean, five kids starting all the businesses that type of work ethic, was that extraordinary or is that common? Was he able to create that environment that he talked about respecting in the Jewish communities that, you know, a a community of African-American owned businesses, people in the community, was he someone that brought that together?
1: My dad was an extraordinary person and an extraordinary businessman. He was very successful. He was beloved by the community. And uh, he just had a just a way of talking to people and getting them to like him and our businesses. And so, yes, he was an extraordinary person to be able to start a business. First of all, to have the courage to draw down on your pension when you have five small children Mm. to open a little hamburger stand. And in those days, his colleagues at work called him crazy for leaving his good $22,000 a year county uh, job to open a little hamburger stand. They thought he was crazy, but he had big dreams. He he saw a bigger picture and he had vision. He was a visionary. And so he was not going to allow himself to stay on a job for 30 to 40 years and not have anything to show at the end of that time. And so he branched out and took what money he could and opened the business. And he was able to grow that business to four locations, plus two nursery schools with absolutely no bank loans. Hmm. And so the level of commitment of work, I've never seen anybody work that hard uh, in my life. Uh, And it was just a great example for me because he worked harder than anybody I've ever seen. He did not complain. He he was not a victim. He did not cry victim. He just did what he had to do to uh, make the businesses as successful as they could be.
0: Well, that's beautiful. I want to ask, were you ever aware, because maybe you just took a cue from your father that said, I'm not a victim. You didn't hear him constantly complaining about the unfair situation he had to fight versus other people, other white people. But when did it become clear to you that that was happening to your dad, that your dad was working and taking risks, working hard and taking risks in ways that other people didn't have to?
1: I don't know if we ever knew it back then because he never complained about anything. Mm. He never talked about the fact that he couldn't get a loan or anything like that. He may have mentioned it, but he, he didn't dwell on it, you know? So um, I just saw him working hard and being as creative as he could be to keep uh, keep the businesses growing. I mean, he started doing the, the meal bundle, which was a burger, fries, and a drink, you know, years before uh, McDonald's and, and Burger King and all of the big companies did it. Hmm. And, and it was called the Hamburger City Special. And we'd have a line 30 people deep come in to buy that special. You know, he was just just creative and innovative. Every obstacle that came his way, he figured out a way to get past it, beyond it, go over it, go around it. And he didn't let anything stop him. And so uh, that's something that I picked up from him. uh, Because like him, I believe that I can get by or get around anything that's thrown at me, any obstacle that comes my way. I believe that I can defeat it and keep my business going. And so that's just the mentality that, I, that I've that i always had. And I've got that directly from him.
0: I mean, I feel like this must be the case, but is Doolin's in a way, is that your church? Is the food your church? Is what you provide to the community? I mean, in a way you're, I don't want to over-dramatize this, but listen, I'm an actor, so I tend to over-dramatize things, but- are you your own kind of preacher in a way because the way you provide and create community for those you love around you, like because you're a touchstone in that way, do you see that almost as a service? That is probably
1: one of the best questions that I've been asked since I've been in business, and no one has ever asked me that question. Oh, wow. And I would say, absolutely, I feel that way. I take great pride and I have great joy in providing a service or a hot meal or a job or, you know, uh, some of the advice I give to my young employees uh, in my community. It's not a money thing for me. I'm not in the business to make a bunch of money. If that happens and, you know, that's great, but I just love the joy of being viewed as a successful business in the community, first of all, a place where people can go to have, hold, and host special occasions and events, a role model where people can, you know, point to. And uh, it, yeah, so absolutely, I think that that would be something that I would would uh, say is, is how I approached things. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's beautiful, Greg. And um, this brings us to our second break. So we'll be back with the third segment in just a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one-to-two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me, because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with Greg in our final segment. Greg, I wanted to ask you just briefly about the experience of your father's death and what that meant to you and the way he approached it. That's something that you, you said you had something to say about.
1: Well, my, my dad was such a huge personality in Los Angeles. I mean, he was just so well-known, so well-liked. He was, uh, just friendly. He was a, he was a mentor. He was funny. He encouraged people in their lives and he was just just a huge, huge tower of a, of a man, and just big, big shoes to follow. And I just thought about, you know, how you know how are we going to live without him? There are going to be so many people who are going to to miss him. And it, you know, it showed his uh, love and respect was evident at his funeral, where, where over a thousand people uh, attended. Uh, many people. I had never met before who afterwards came up and I heard story after story after story about how my father did this or how he he lent somebody money or how he encouraged or how he had been a mentor for this person for years. And I never even met that person before. And so uh, his his passing was not only devastating for our family, but for a lot of people in the community, he truly was loved uh, by the community. So it was, it was a big, big loss.
0: How old was he when he died? Do you mind if I ask?
1: My dad was, was 82 and he approached his death the same way he lived his life. And that was with optimism, with, with his positive spirit. He commanded us not to have a funeral, he did not wanna have a funeral. Wow! He wanted a brunch or a jazz brunch where we could all come together and have a, have a good time and celebrate his life. He wanted us to celebrate his life. And so we did have a service at a church in his honor, but we took him to the burial site first. And I like to say we dropped him off. <laughs> so you and, were able uh, to
0: adhere to his wishes. You guys had the service for yourselves, but he didn't have to have the funeral.
1: Right, so we had a private service with just family members, 50 family members at the uh, cemetery. And then we left and went to a waiting uh, audience of, of a thousand people who wanted to also celebrate his life. And we had a brief service there. And then we followed his wishes. We didn't have a brunch. But we had a jazz band, and we had a fabulous dinner for 700 people wow. at the African-American Museum near downtown. And it was festive, and it was upbeat, and we let people reflect on their experiences with, with our dad, and it was not a sad occasion at all, and it was just the way he would have wanted it. So oh, beautiful! he was a very positive person, and that's how he approached he approached it. Uh, the guests that were there did not leave sad, and that's what we were trying to accomplish.
0: You did it at Cam down there, and uh, yeah, that's that's beautiful. So, Greg, you mentioned these big shoes that you have to fill, and clearly, clearly, you're doing such an amazing job. I don't want to over speak here, but you're you're clearly running the business with integrity and and continuing its success. Since this is our last segment, I, I wanna hear you talk about what, you, what your hopes are for the restaurant as you and the restaurants as you see them, as you hope that they'll hold the same meaning in, in your community, um, probably after you're gone. But also, I wanted you to talk more about your place in the community and what you know about your community. Basically, just please share more about the community of South Los Angeles that, frankly, I, I just should know or that I would love to learn.
1: Well, as it relates to the restaurants, um, I'm a, I'm a student of success and, and specifically as it relates to, to restaurants and the restaurant industry, and I've traveled around the country and I've seen uh, successful independent restaurants that have uh, lasted uh, over time, and I hope to emulate those uh, entities. And my goal is to maintain an African-American owned and operated restaurant in Los Angeles in the Crenshaw District for long and beyond my, my existence. And so to do that, I'm doing things like purchasing land and property and, you know, making sure that everything is secure and everything like that. And so that, that's a big part of what I'm doing. But, you know, we we need a legacy and, you know, things are shifting in Los Angeles, populations are shifting and things are being priced out of this world. Real estate prices, rental prices, and things like that are just going through the roof. And so a lot of the small mom and pop businesses, and I'm speaking, uh, the African-American businesses are either going out of business, have already gone out of business, or soon will go out of business. And so my goal is to not let that happen to the Doolin's restaurants. And so uh, that's what I'm trying to accomplish. We are one of the uh, tourist attractions for African-Americans and non-African-Americans actually, who visit Los Angeles. Uh, I was teasing the mayor of Los Angeles once and by telling him that every great city needs a great soul food restaurant. And for Los Angeles, that restaurant is doing soul food. Mm. And that's actually true because when people travel to different cities, one of the first questions they ask, and I'm telling you this, you you may not know this, but they ask, you know, where's the good soul food? And that message is usually delivered by word of mouth. And that's how Soulful restaurants have uh, survived and thrived over uh, the last few decades uh, through word of mouth, through uh, one person telling another. Typically, the average soulful restaurant is, doesn't have a big advertising budget. They're not You'll never see their ad on television or probably not in print, uh, certainly not in the big magazines. And so one of the ways that these restaurants have been able to survive over the years Is through people telling other people, and with Doolins, we're, we're, you know, that's certainly how we've we've been here. So, but we're also trying to take it to the next level, and grow the business and grow opportunities. And we take great pride in being being able to hire people from the community, hiring people who have recently been released from jail, uh, hiring single mothers, you know, all of those groups of people that find it difficult to find employment, Uh, they all have a home here at Doolin's. And that's something that we take great pride in. So uh, I want to continue doing that. And hopefully, hopefully one day my children will take over and keep things going. Now, at the current time, they have no interest in doing that. So it's a 50-50 shot either way. But, you know, that would be nice if that would happen.
0: And the other 50% is you'd sell it to somebody else that you trust in the community.
1: And that's also a possibility. And uh, I've seen that example taken uh, recently by another one of my colleagues who also owned a soul food restaurant. And so that would be a possibility as well. Yes. Greg,
0: I'm going to ask a question that's, it's tough for me to ask. Go ahead. Go ahead. How, because I'm a part of that population of people that, you know, gets a good job in LA or something and then moves into a neighborhood that's at my price point and is not at the person's price point that's been there for 40 years or whatever. And do you find it hard? Doolin's was welcome to anyone. It's welcome to me, right? They're open arms to everyone in the community. And, and yet at the same time, it must be very conflicting for you to possibly watch the, the clientele begin to shift. And I guess my question is, boy, what is my question?
1: Well, let me just say, it's not conflicting at all. We've always had a diverse clientele uh, certainly, when we were out, we were in Marina Del Reyes on Kizzy's back porch. And one of the things that my father and I always say is that everybody loves soul food.
0: Yeah. Uh, everybody
1: likes good fried chicken, mashed potatoes and gravy, uh, cornbread, you know, uh, string beans. You know, this is food that our mothers used to cook. Uh, maybe they didn't cook it the same way. They were the recipes were certainly different. But our food is American food. This is the food that. Many Americans grew up eating, and so we don't look to have an all-black clientele or all-white clientele. We just want clientele. And so, no, I'm not conflicted at all, and uh, I I welcome the change. And, uh, you know, we're here to serve everybody and to work with everybody, and that's the way we've always approached things.
0: That's beautiful. Greg, when you think about yourself running the restaurant, are you do you see yourself being 80 years old running this restaurant? Are you still going in and out of the doors, meeting the meat man, all that stuff?
1: Absolutely not. My father, my <laughs> father did that.
0: It's <laughs> no, not. Nice. That is an awesome response. I wasn't sure what yeah. I was going to get. That's not what
1: I thought I was going to get. That's <laughs> <Absolutely>. great. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm counting the days. I'm counting the days. I don't even know how old you are,
0: Greg. Do you mind if I ask?
1: I'm, I am 62 years old.
0: Okay. Well, so you want to? So what do you want to do then? What comes after? Say you got five years or something, right? You're going to, let's just say it's 67 or, you know, 67. You're going
1: to. Yeah, well, that's actually pretty accurate. Um, And it would have been 65, but I got delayed on a couple of projects.
0: I feel like isn't Medicare and all that stuff pushing people back too? It's not 65 anymore. It's 67 or 68. Like, aren't we all getting older or something now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I, want to spend some time in Africa. Oh, cool. One of my goals is to open a business in Africa, uh, probably would be in the country of Ghana. Wow. And uh, to get that business going, get it established, and then just leave it. Just just leave it and leave it for the uh, people that I bring in to work with me to run and to hire and to uh, contribute. That's something that I'd like to do. I'd also like to possibly open more restaurants, help others open businesses around the country. And again, maybe take a fee for my efforts and then just leave the businesses and just let them have it, let them run it, let them go with it, and just, you know, do something like that.
0: Why Ghana? Why why Ghana? Of, why do you feel particularly attached or, or there's a particular kinship for you with that particular
1: country? Uh, because of the countries in Africa that I've visited that seems the easiest to do business. And I just love it. I love the people. I love the country. And there's such a need. There's such a great, great need. You know, a lot of the uh, youth in some of the African countries don't have the same opportunities, job opportunities, etc. that we have here in the United States. And so it would be an honor for me to be able to do something that hopefully would be positive and would uh, give back to the uh, land where where my ancestors originated. And so, uh, you know, there's a great need for that, I believe. And and so that's what I would, that's something I'd like to try to do. And I'm, and I'm going to do it.
0: I'm going to do it. Are you gonna are you gonna cook fried chicken in Ghana? I might. Oh, Greg, that's an amazing image. Can you
1: imagine?
0: I love it. Oh, I mean, come on. I'm sure I'm sure it'll take off.
1: That's can so you cool. imagine Nashville hot chicken in Ghana? Wow. Oh my god. The lines would be around the block. Oh, that is a cool thought. You know, and then I, and then I'm going to just Mentor and and hopefully you know maybe serve on some community boards and and help others start businesses and uh, after I do all of that I, I want to travel travel the world just just go places that I haven't been before and just spend time traveling traveling the world.
0: Greg, this was a really really lovely conversation that I just, I enjoyed so much. And I really appreciate you uh, sharing about your life and your, and your goals. And I just cannot wait to go to Ghana and get in line. I'll wait for a couple hours. I don't mind. Yeah, I'll take turns. I'll put my wife in line, then I'll go do something. I'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's just going to work.
0: I can't wait. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy and I just wish you nothing but the most immense success. And I can't wait to come back down there with my family and, and see you at Doolin's, okay?
1: Okay. You know, when you get ready to come, call me first and we can make sure I'm here, all right? So I can greet I will. I okay. will.
0: Okay, now let me say, just hold on one quick second, Greg, and then just let me officially say goodbye to the show and then I'll say goodbye to you, okay? Okay. All right. And thank you all for listening.